The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke This is a Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Please visit calcedon.edu to download this and many other articles by Rusus John Rushdudy. Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Shelby Luke, and I will be reading from Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushdudy. Wealth and Airship, Calcedon Position Paper Number 27 One of the most powerful, corrosive, and destructive forces in all of history is very much at work today in all the world. Envy. Envy is, in terms of biblical faith, very clearly a sin, but in the modern age it comes disguised as a virtue. The motive force in much of the equalitarianism of our day is not a sense of brotherhood, but an envy which seeks to level all things. Envy also masks itself as a concern, very commonly for social justice, and it lays claims to saintly character while promoting hatred revolution, and murder. Envy wars against status, but every revolution in the modern age has promoted a new elitism and established a social order more static, fixed, and class-conscious than those orders it displaces. Envy claims to promote equality, justice, and democracy, while in practice working to destroy all three of these things. Envy capitalizes on issues, not on principles. The world being a sinful and fallen order, the best of societies have glaring defects in need of correction, but envy capitalizes on these defects while avoiding principles. Envy does not correct, it destroys. Because envy is sin, it wars against virtue and character, while capitalizing on the weaknesses of, let us say, the middle class, the doctors, technicians, press, clergy, and so on. It seeks, in reality, to suppress and destroy their character and strength. It says, in effect, Let none be better than myself. Some years ago, as a young man, 
I saw in a particular church an evil family champion a pastor of bad character. In one incident, I learned they liked him for his sins because it, quote, justified, unquote, them, whereas every godly man was slandered and resented by them. The unwritten law in the hearts of envious men is, let no man be better than myself. Because envy is evil, it resents the good and is hence very destructive socially. It reduces church, state, and society to the lowest common denominator. Aristides the Just, c. 468 B.C., an Athenian statesman and general, was ostracized from the city in part because many people were resentful of hearing him called, quote, the just, unquote. Then and now, many people prefer a corrupt politician to a good and honest man. They resent excellence and superiority. The role of envy in many spheres and with respect to many things could be cited at length, but our concern now is with a key area for envy, wealth and airship. It is commonly said that we live in a very materialistic age. Pitrum Sorkin called it a sensate culture. The lust for wealth, or at least the appearance of wealth, is commonplace. A variety of things such as furniture, automobiles, and clothing sell less for their durability and more for their utility in creating the proper image, the image of careless and assumed wealth. Together with this lust for material and monetary wealth goes a resentment for the wealthy. The tacit premise is that let no man be wealthy if we cannot all be wealthy. Hence, the revolutionary urge is to destroy wealth and then try to recreate it for all, an illusory hope. The result instead is a wealthy group of social planners who will not allow any man to transcend their control or status. At the same time, there is an intense envy and resentment of heirs. How dare anyone inherit wealth? Over the years, from professors, students, and a wide range of peoples, I have heard expressed a radical hostility to heirship. Our state inheritance taxes witness to this hatred, and today this uncontrolled envy of heirs has made the robbing of widows and orphans a matter of state policy. The estate of the father may be a limited one, and of consequence only because of inflation, but envy strikes increasingly lower and lower from the upper class to the middle class, and now increasingly lower on the economic scale. The income tax is similarly a consequence of envy. Many churchmen are very much a part of this world of envy, and they promote it as gospel. The word, quote, rich, unquote, by which they mean richer than I, is for many the ultimate insult. Our Chalcedon mailing list friends report some examples of this. One clergyman said that it was immoral for any man to have an income in excess of $20,000 a year. Another, several hundred miles away, said that an annual income of over $40,000 was unchristian and a sin. It takes little imagination to guess what their own salaries were. If a goodly income is a sin, how much more so an inheritance in the eyes of these men? An heir receives money he has not earned, we are told, and therefore does not deserve. Such money should be taken from heirs and given to the, quote, needy, unquote. 
in practice, taking money from the rich means giving it to an even richer state, not to the needy. Moreover, if failure to earn the money is the heir's problem, then why is it proper to give this money either to the state or to the needy, neither of whom have earned it? We have, in all envy and its social programs, a double standard. There is one point, and a necessary point, which we must grant, and in fact we must insist on granting the heir's money is unearned. This is a crucial point theologically, as we shall see. However, before proceeding to that fact, let us stop briefly to stress an important distinction. There is a very great difference between unearned wealth and unjustly gained wealth. My father left me no money, being a poor pastor, but he left me some books, a very important form of wealth for me. I have a personal library of twenty-five to 30,000 books, many of which I inherited from my father and from two other pastors, and many of which I bought. I did not earn many of those books, although many I did. Am I unjustly the owner of the unearned books? They were given to me as acts of love and grace, and I am happily and gratefully their present possessor. My books are a form of wealth for me, and they have been so also for friends and associates who have used them in their research. Only if I were to have some stolen books in my library would these be an illegitimate form of wealth. The distinction between legitimate and illegitimate wealth must not be obscured. Now we are ready to deal with the key question, the unearned nature of wealth which is inherited. The modern world, being anti-Christian, is very hostile to heirship, whereas the Christian must regard it as central to his faith. There are far-reaching theological implications here. Very centrally, the doctrine of grace is involved. The language of, quote, rights, unquote, is basic to our humanistic age, which at the same time is the most murderous era in all history, very often in the name of the rights of man. Modern man assumes that he has a right to many things, and with each decade the catalog of rights is increased, as is the scale of oppression and totalitarianism in the name of rights. Theologically, however, man has no rights as he stands before God. All that he has is of grace, sovereign grace. Both man and his world are the creation of the triune God. No man is born into an empty world. We are all born heirs of our history, and we inherit the riches and the devastations of our forebears. We are what we are by the grace and the providence of God. St. Paul, in a key verse, struck at the pretensions of man, saying, quote, for who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory, as if thou hadst not received it? 1 Corinthians 4, 7 St. Peter says that life itself is a grace, a gift of God. 1 Peter 3, 7 We are not the authors of life, nor the determiners of the conditions thereof. Life is a grace a gift from God, and for better or worse, we are all heirs. Our inheritance is often a marred one because of sin, but all the same, we are heirs 
redeemed or unredeemed. If we fail to recognize God's grace and purpose or bow before His sovereignty, we are judged and disinherited. But if we are the redeemed, we are heirs of the kingdom of God, confirmed heirs, heirs together with Christ, we are repeatedly told, Romans eight seventeen, Galatians three twenty nine and four seven, Ephesians three six, Hebrews six seven, and James two five, etc. The Bible requires that we recognize the fact of grace and heirship. They are essential to the doctrine of salvation and also to the biblical way of life. What are we we have received, and we are not our own? 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Quote, Therefore let no man glory in men. Unquote. 1 Corinthians three twenty one. For any reason, neither in other men nor especially in ourselves. We are not only created by the Lord, but also bought back and redeemed at the price of Christ's blood. 1 Corinthians 6.20 The envious man of today refuses to see all this. The world is a product of chance, and in that realm of chance man has struggled, fought, survived, and advanced himself. He has come so far that he can now self-consciously control and direct his future evolution. We have here the most radical doctrine of works in all history. The works involved are, quote, red in tooth and claw. Unquote. And man evolves by destroying lesser forms, including the abortion of unwanted and also potentially defective unborn babies, he believes. This envious humanistic man feels justified also in striking at the born, heirs especially, in order to further his concept of social advance and justice. Because he is at war with God, this humanistic man rejects radically the idea of grace and heirship in any and every realm, from the theological to the societal. He does more than reject it, he wars against it, and it is a total war. Some scholars write as though social Darwinism were a thing of the past. Their works are simply a fraud. What has passed away is the social Darwinism of the men of Carnegie's day and class. In example, the social Darwinism of the powerful and largely non-Christian or anti-Christian industrialists who believed in the manipulation of the state for their purposes. In their place, we have the social Darwinism of socialism and modern democracies, a disguised form thereof, but real all the same. Behind the facade of benevolence, the modern state applies a legal guillotine to all whom it deems unfit to serve. In such a situation, more than ever, it is imperative for Christians to revive the biblical doctrines of grace and heirship. In a world of grace, we are all heirs. We have received unearned wealth without any work or works on our part. Heirship imposes upon us a major task of stewardship. The whole of the law gives us the pattern of stewardship, for the heirs of grace. Our Lord sums it all up in six words. Quote, freely ye have received, freely give. Unquote. Matthew 10, 8. This commandment was given to the disciples and to us. It applies to all, whether rich or poor, according to man's reckoning. 
We are all too prone today to assume that the duty to give freely or generously belongs to the rich, and the rest of us have the duty of receiving. It is, in fact, basic to envy that it demands that the envied give and the envier either receive or determine the disposition of that which is given. We have seen a great variety of people see themselves as the necessary recipients. The various minority groups believe that they have a right to gifts. So, too, do the elderly. And along with the state school personnel, they constitute our most powerful lobby. Of course, industry, agriculture, and labor all seek subsidies or gifts. Envy leads to the world of coercion. The Bible, however, says that all men began with the grace of life. The redeemed are doubly the recipients of grace, and they are the heirs designate of all things in Christ. They have received freely, and they must give freely. The Christian position is thus founded on heirship and grace. We must recognize that we have received freely and that the Lord requires us to work for the reconstruction of all things in terms of God's law word. This reconstruction requires that we give our lives, time, thought, effort, and money to that end. When James speaks of us as heirs, James 2.5, and as joint heirs with Christ the King, princes of grace, he summons us to fulfill or keep the royal law. Quote, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Unquote. James 2.8. We are told, quote, Thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is He that giveth thee power to get wealth. Unquote. Deuteronomy 8, 18. We are told, quote, Thou shalt open thine hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, and to thy needy in thy land. Unquote. Deuteronomy 15, 11. Envy is divisive and destructive. It creates a world of conflict and hatred. Hatred of the rich is as much a sin as hatred of the poor. When we are commanded by God to love our neighbor, no qualifications are made exempting us from loving him if he is rich or poor, black or white. We are to fulfill an example, keep the law in relation to him by respecting the sanctity of his marriage, life, property, and reputation in word, thought, and deed. Romans 13, 8-10, and to see him as our God-given neighbor. Some neighbors will indeed be problems. Of that there is no question. However, we must remember that in this world of grace and heirship, among the things we often inherit are problems. We have them because God intended them not for us to complain about, but to meet in his grace and by his law word. We must face them in the confidence of Romans eight twenty eight that indeed all things do work together for good to them who love God and are thee called according to his purpose. But to be called of God means that we are fulfilling his calling. If all is of grace, there is no place for envy. We are heirs by the adoption of grace in order that we might give of that which we have received in order to be faithful citizens and members of the kingdom of God. Let us leave the world of envy for the wealth of grace and airship. December 1981. Wealth and the City, Chalcedon Position Paper Number 28. 
The word society comes from socius, an associate. A society is a family group in some sense, a community of people who feel some kinship. Historically, the binding tie in a society is a common faith and obedience to the law of that faith. All who deny that faith and law have been in the past called outlaws. The locale of a society has historically been a city, not the city as a civil structure, but the city as a faith center. In the ancient world, in the, quote, Middle Ages, unquote, in the Puritan village and elsewhere, the center of the city has been the temple, cathedral, or church. The city as the faith center for an area has thus also been the wealth center. A people's life, wealth, and faith are closely linked. As our Lord says, quote, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, unquote. Matthew six twenty one. If a people's treasure is their faith, and in society in faith, then their hearts and their material wealth will be there also, in the same locale. For ages, that center of faith, society, and wealth was also walled to protect the concentration of treasures in the forms of faith, lives, society, and material wealth. The walled city was thus a symbol of a common faith in life and also of security. When the Huguenots lost their walled cities, it was the beginning of the end for them. At the same time, the walled city became a target for every enemy and every thief. The strength and wealth of the city attracted the attention of the lawless. Faith, wealth, family, land, and the city have often been associated as means of strength and security. Thus, Proverbs 10.15 reads, quote, The rich man's wealth is his strong city. The destruction of the poor is their poverty. Unquote. As R. V. Wabray in the book of Proverbs noted, quote, Wealth protects a man from misfortune just as a strongly fortified capital protects a king from his enemies. Unquote. On the other hand, Proverbs 18, 10-11, tells us that there are two different ways to obtain security in life, to trust in God or to trust in wealth. The separation of wealth from faith is the destruction of man and, finally, of wealth. The same is true of the walled city. Quote, Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. Unquote. Psalms 127, 1. Apart from the Lord and faith in Him, the city can be a death trap, and the countryside too. A city gives men proximity one to another, but without the moral bond of a common faith. The city and its government become aliens and then oppressors of the people. In the ancient city, citizens were all who partook of the lustrations or whatever other rite of atonement they adhered to. In other words, atonement made the city and the citizen. Hence, to attempt to change faiths and atonements was an act of revolution. The new faith had to be either incorporated with the current one or destroyed. Hence, the prosecution of the early church. Its Lord was not Caesar, but Jesus Christ. And its atonement was not from the civil religion, but the cross. Modern man has worked self-consciously to throw off the shackles of the past, most notably to discard biblical faith and all its restraints. The modern city is to be the work of man. 
no less than the builders of the Tower of Babel sought to build a social order without God. The builders of the modern city and the modern state have sought a non-theistic order. The modern state and the modern city united to assert a neutrality and an autonomy from God. Neutrality commended itself as a restraint upon the clamor of various churches to be established. Under the merits of anti-establishmentarianism, a separation from Christianity was effected. This supposed neutrality, with respect to the claims of all religions, served to mask an allegiance to another religion, humanism, which is the new established religion of states, courts, and state schools of the modern age. At the same time, the claim to autonomy was advanced. The city and the state are supposedly independent of God. They constitute a free zone where God's power and law do not extend and where man, as man, is his own God and law. The autonomous city sees itself as the free city, free to plan and chart its course in terms of purely humanistic considerations. The modern city was determined to be the city of man, not the city of God. A fundamental assumption of this new faith has been at worst the moral neutrality of man, or at best the goodness of man. All the centuries of slow and painstaking work to civilize the barbarian peoples by means of faith and to order their lives by means of God's law were viewed as a great aberration. Man will be most good when most natural, it was declared. As against the redeemed, twice-born man, the once-born man was championed. As against supernatural man, natural man was seen as the hope of the world. Men like Horace Mann were enthusiastic about the prospects of mankind. The natural man, re-educated out of the superstitions of the past, would produce a crime-free, poverty-free world in which man would be his own lord. Disagreements were prevalent in the 19th and early 20th centuries as to the best means to this golden age of man. Some believed revolution and massive destruction were needed. Others advocated democracy and mass education as the way to the great city of man, the great community of John Dewey and others. But a problem arose, however, unacknowledged, whether in the U.S. or the USSR, Europe, Asia, Africa, the Americas, or elsewhere, man remained, not what the ideologist and theoretician said he was, but what God says man is, a sinner. The new city of man was to be a product of humanistic education, the new technology and autonomous wealth. Humanistic education has produced a new barbarian and mass illiteracy. The liberal Jonathan Kosal in Prisoners of Silence, 1980, cites federal data which reveals that 54 to 64 million Americans are not truly literate, and of these 23 million are illiterate. Natural man, moreover, was not only now increasingly illiterate, but also immoral and lawless. The city was becoming a dangerous place, and more and more parents feared their own children. In perhaps the safest of America's very largest cities, over 60,000 homes were robbed in 1981. 
the city was now breeding its own destruction. Wealth without faith was providing to be wealth without principles, immoral and arrogant, even as the poor had also become, and a derelict middle class as well. Technology has indeed been creating marvels, but the people who dwell among them and use them are increasingly like marauding barbarians in an ancient city. Neither technology nor the bobby pin has served to make man one whit a better man in any moral sense. The new humanistic man is a parasite, whether former, manufacturer, worker, or unemployed, he wants subsidies. The modern city is a subsidy center. The earth mercantilism worked to create the humanistic producing urban center by means of protectionism and tariffs. A new kind of wall surrounds the city. The ancient city was walled against thieves and enemies. The modern city is walled against competition and the free market. The United States in its earliest years faced a choice here. It could become the great supplier to the world of food, minerals, and other resources. It chose, however, to follow the very European pattern it had in part fought against, protectionism aimed at subsidizing industry and the city. Given the virtues of industry and commerce, protectionism all the same perverts them and renders them a source of continuing problems. Thomas Jefferson protested against these policies until he became president, whereupon he and his followers became Federalists and protectionists. The protectionism became a major contributing cause of the conflict between the North and the South and of war in 1860. Protectionism and subsidies do not stop. It was a natural development of this premise that led, step by step, to welfareism, to Medicare, to cradle-to-grave subsidies for all. How dare one class complain about subsidies to another class when all are increasingly becoming beneficiaries. Thus we have the grand climax of the modern age. Having destroyed the city as a faith center, it has converted the city into a welfare center. It is a routine now for our major cities to have a welfare population of a million or more. These are simply the recipients of actual welfare checks. Others receive subsidies, and some are heavily penalized to provide subsidies to others. The subsidy program now extends into all the world in terms of foreign aid to nations. It includes subsidies to foreign industries by restraints upon U.S. producers, an example in oil, cattle, etc., which handicap them. The faith city has been supplanted by the welfare city, a lawless and selfish place. The result is a debauchery of men and money. Protectionism must be paid for, and it is paid for by deficit financing, mortgaging the future to pay for the present. Inflation and debt are basic to the modern city. If only the debt-free buildings and homes were to remain in our big cities and all others suddenly disappeared, our cities would suddenly become small towns. Men, too, are debauched. Helmut Thielick in Nihilism, 1961, wrote on the fact that atheistic states always become totalitarian. The premise of atheism is that, quote, without God, everything is lawful, 
unquote. And men then act on this, and no man can trust another. The state becomes a police state, because the people can only be held in check by stronger and stronger controls and by terror. Also, the state begins to play God. Law then becomes what the state says it is, and the result is the breakdown of law, because it has no roots in the nature of being. The city then begins to resemble a nightmare. Past history gives us many examples of the sacking of cities by invaders. One of the worst instances was the sack of Rome by the armies of Spain. These sacks were prompted by war and by enmity. Now we have a different kind of sacking, one by the people of the city, the poor, minority groups, youths, and college and university students. The second half of the 20th century has seen more cities sacked than centuries before. The modern city is indeed a wealth center, but it is not a society, and it is being sacked by its own children. When Rome was first sacked by the barbarians, many people, when the hordes passed, went back to life as usual. The rich villas of southern Gaul continued to be the locale of gay parties, music, poetry, and fox hunts by the wealthy, literate, and cultured old Romans. But little by little, their lights went out, only to be relit out of the ruins and among the barbarians by Christianity. What had happened was that the city of Rome, the wealth center, had become the poverty center. This was physically true in that welfare mobs ruled the city, to the point that emperors found it much more expedient to live elsewhere. For Roman emperors, Rome had become an unsafe place, a place of assassinations, riots, and unruly mobs. Well before that, however, Rome had become morally and religiously a poverty center. The old Roman faith and virtue had given way to degeneracy and perversion. In time, as Rome's intangible wealth began to disappear, so too its tangible wealth followed and waned. The wealth of a city begins and ends with its faith. If the city is not a faith center, it will cease to be a society and will become a conflict and poverty center. One key form of wealth which has left the modern city is justice and vengeance, godly vengeance. One of the key facts of Scripture is God's declaration, quote, To me belongeth vengeance and recompense, unquote. Deuteronomy 32, 35, Psalms 99, 8, Isaiah 34, 8, Jeremiah 50, 15, Ezekiel 24, 25, Nahum 1, 2, 1 Thessalonians 1, 8, Psalms 94, 1, etc. We are commanded not to avenge ourselves for, quote, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord, unquote. Romans 12, 19. The Greek text of the New Testament is as clear as to the meaning of vengeance as the church is confused. The word is ekdekesis, very literally, that which proceeds out of justice. When God says that vengeance belongs to him, he is very plainly declaring that only his law is justice, and no other law can be used to attain justice. When he forbids us to avenge ourselves, God is saying that we can have no law nor justice other than his own, 
and through His appointed means. This is the plain meaning of the statement in Scripture. Clearly, justice has gone out of the city, the state, the church, and man. Humanistic doctrines of justice and the enforcement of justice prevail because the city is not a faith center nor a justice center as biblical faith requires it to be, but a man center. For a city to be a faith center means that it must be a justice center. Justice is a key form of wealth. One Hebrew word for wealth is a good thing. The modern city is thus an impoverished place and a poverty center in every sense of the word. Not until the pulpits of the word of God again become central to a city and the Bible its word of justice and vengeance or that which proceeds out of justice will the city again be a center of true wealth. That restoration is underway, slowly but surely. The humanistic city still has its worst days ahead, probably. However, out of its decay, the city of God will emerge. We are beginning to see the stirrings of a strong faith among minority and majority groups alike. We are seeing the rise of Christian schools and agencies, manifesting a renewed literacy and a greater Christian compassion than we have seen for years. We are witnessing on all sides the growth of Christian reconstruction and the applications of God's law word to every area of life and thought. We live in an exciting era. True, it is a time of conflict and of stress, a bloody and murderous age, an old, quote, order, unquote. Humanism is in decay and its strongholds are crumbling and collapsing. It is time for building in the certainty of our Lord's triumph. Quote, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Unquote. 1 Corinthians fifteen, fifty-eight, January 1982. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had shown by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me.
God's only Son. Love, embrace Him and go. Oh, how precious Jesus is to us as the husband of the bride to be. Tell the world of His wrath. Tell the world of His love. Christ has set you free, set you free. He is the Lord of life to me. Tell the world.